Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now. <laughs> Chris, alcoholic. Chris. All right. A newcomer asks her sponsor what the big book says has to say about sex. The sponsor gets her book numbers mixed up and instead of referring to the newcomer to page 69, directs her to page 96 where she reads, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. <laughs> you are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Marion. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everyone ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
Those who would like to join me, please um, join me in the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we've discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I have asked Karina to come and read a spiritual experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it's kind of important to know what one is. Hi, family. My name is Karina, recovered alcoholic. The spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of a sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapid-growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Yeah, baby. Thank you, Karina. 
Um, so at this time, it is my honor and privilege to bring up our speaker. Um, I'll brag about him all day and all night. Um, my husband, my shoulder to shoulder, um, mighty man of God, you know, and um, can't say enough about him. So he's the speaker. I'm not. Come on up, honey, and talk to him about God. <laughs> My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I think our friend Paulie had 20 years, right? Um, yeah. He's having a party up there with the carpenter, the angels, and the saints. He's probably in the sanctuary with Jesus saying, let me retile the whole place for you. Yeah, I'll give you a deal. Um, Glad to be here. June 23rd, 1988 is when loving God separated me from alcohol. And uh, I, I'm grateful to be able to talk about the good news that was brought to me back then and continues to be delivered to me a day at a time in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm always thrilled to be at this meeting on a Thursday night. It's my favorite day of the week to be here and just be around some of the folks here, the trusted servants who get here really early to set this place up and make it look the way it looks and the way it runs. Um, so I thank the group for having me. I can't believe I have one more week of this left and, and I can hang out in the back and annoy Michael for an hour. Um, I'm supposed to talk about step 11 and back in step 10, they talk about entering the world of the spirit um, where it changes completely. And I get to touch the, the everything of God and get to see the all of everything uh, in God, that God does. Um, it's a great phrase I heard that God's center is everywhere and his circumference is nowhere. And as long as I'm awake and not sound asleep, I get to hear that, I get to see that in all that I do. And I, I must tell you, over the years, it's over 34 years now, uh, there have been times when my back has been against the wall. Uh, financial hardship, difficulties, career uh, hardship and difficulties and being out of work and uh, experiencing a divorce and just uh, burying too many people. Um, some difficult things, but personally, uh, the challenges that I've been able to en- had to encounter. And um, when I first had that happen to me, I thought I was failing in Alcoholics Anonymous, that because you're in Alcoholics Anonymous, there are no hard times anymore. There are no more challenges. Everything is just wonderful. You'll be rich and famous if you do 90 and 90, and that's all. You never have to look back. And I was in for a rude awakening. And what that that anxiety and that nervousness, uh, that fear, that living in the wreckage of the future has been replaced with is an undercurrent of God, an undercurrent of okayness. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, I've wept. I've doubted God. I've had skepticism. I wondered, why is he paying attention? Doesn't he see what's going on here? Uh, can you give me a break, that kind of stuff, and negotiate with God? Um, but when it's all said and done through the act of surrender and amends, forgiveness and amends, I have always come out on the other side better for it because the tree got pruned even more. And although I couldn't see what God was doing when I was going through it, when I got to the other side, because we live life forward and understand it backwards, I can see exactly what was going on. And then sometimes you just feel like you're involved in a drive-by shooting. Sometimes people are just cruel and, and just do mean things. 
perhaps not orchestrated by God. But the, the armor of God and the, the walk with God gets me through it, gets me through it over and over and over again. And he knows I'm doubting. He knows I have skepticism. He knows I'm human, which means I'm flawed and broken. That's just my condition that I walk around with. And I'm sure in the future I'll have more doubts and skepticism, but he's got that. It's just been replaced with an undercurrent of okayness. I just wanted to illustrate uh, uh, for you in a story. Last week I shared one story, and uh, I'll get to share another one uh, about how God knows exactly where I'm at and how God resides in the soul here. There's something that Third Step says, it says, if we keep close to him, the form is work well. I don't have to get close to be close. I just wake up to the nearness of my creator. That's a line out of a big book. We wake up to how close God is. And very often for me, it has happened in moments of doubt and skepticism, in moments of great emotional turmoil. When I felt my most weakest, my too vulnerable, it's where I find God's strength and God's light. When I was around three years old, uh, and... Let me back up and tell you, one of the things that scares me is one of the first disciplines that seem to fall off the map for a lot of folks is meditation and then prayer because prayer becomes a check-in with God and the nightly review and the nightly practice is gone and the morning is kind of on the work, on the way to work, I check in with God and I'm losing this very vital part of this journey, which is having conscious contact with God and going along with the very strict spiritual disciplines at 10, 11, because the fruits of that labor are incredible. I was around three years old. Uh, I remember I was living in a town called Red Hook, Brooklyn. And my, my dad, uh, my mom, myself, and my kid brother was about one. And we lived up above a luncheonette, Mike's luncheonette. And my dad was renting an apartment up there for us. And my mom wasn't doing too good. And my first encounter with her uh, addiction, mental illness problems, all of it, um, shouldn't have been witnessed by a three-year-old. But I remember there was a big commotion outside on the side of the the building. uh, And I, I ran outside and there was my mom about 20 or 30 feet from me. What I now know was having some sort of nervous breakdown. She was in hysterics, and uh, she was punching this brick wall and uh, just melting in front of me. And I thought about that many times because I've had moments like that. My dad was around. We lived in the neighborhood where my mom's entire family lived. So you think, why would she feel so lonely and so desperate? But I've been in that place and I think my heart hurts when I think about this woman who was probably maybe 30 years old, maybe at the time, maybe younger than that, in this kind of place where the world was caving in on her and her mental health problems weren't being taken care of and her alcoholism pill addiction was was run amok and she was in this very, very desperate place and she broke because we can only take so much. And there was a big commotion people just standing around. And I remember standing in this spot just off the corner and I was like, my mouth was hanging open and I couldn't believe this was my mom. Mom's a perfect apple pie. Everything's good, safe. And I'm watching her go through this experience and I was frozen in this spot. And I remember the old ambulances were like Cadillacs. They were, they were, the Cadillac rolled up and it was an ambulance and out came these guys and Mike showed up. And he put his hand over my eyes so I couldn't see. And uh, I don't know how much later, we were in some hospital in Brooklyn. 
I remember standing in what I think was a lobby next to my grandparents and a door where my mom was swung open. And she had what looked like either a sheet over her, perhaps a straight jacket, but it didn't look right. And she was still in these hysterics and there were doctors around. And I'll never forget my dad who was standing there and he was maybe 30 also, maybe, maybe 27, 28 years old. That's very, very young to be experienced in this type of torment. And the look in his eyes was one of helplessness. And my dad's not that guy. My dad is never helpless. He's the type of guy who would knock down a brick wall to get out of a room if he had to. And the fear that he had. That's not a good memory to grow up with that three years old. Because that was a, a thumbprint on my soul. I don't blame anyone for it. And it was an accumulation of many, many things in my, in, in my home where there were scenes like that regular scenes of my mom having these meltdowns and the suicide attempts, etc. Well, fast forward, I'm going through the steps and I've been through the steps a few times and I have a life of meditation and I can't stress the importance of having a life of meditation to really touch the soul, to be one with the soul. Because as long as I'm operating out of the soul, I'm doing okay. When I'm operating out of the mind, I'm not. The soul knows where to go, what to say, what to do, how to be. The longest distance in the whole world is from the mind to the heart. See, the heart will speak what the mind is full of. So I need a spiritual awakening to clean this up. So I get to hear with the soul. I get to speak from the soul. I get to see from the soul. I get to act from the soul. But when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had it backwards. And it took time. It took time to experience this death of self. And I'm working with prayer meditation. And I wasn't doing it to seek any kind of experience. We, I can get into trouble. We can get into trouble that way where we're meditating for a while. And where's my experience? You know, where's the white light? When are the seas going to part? See, what the mind needs is entertainment. The mind needs juice. The mind needs action. It doesn't like meditation because it's not needed. So if I'm sitting in meditation week after week, month after month, and all I'm doing is breathing and being still, the mind says, this is wrong. We got to do something. So it either quits doing meditation or creates something that looks like a vision. And then I have to go talk about it right away to get affirmation that God really just spoke to me. And all I'm doing is creating stuff that's not there. I need to be able with meditation to be able to walk through a desert or walk on, you know, jagged stones barefoot when I feel like I'm thirsty and I'm hungry and I don't have the, the, the energy to keep moving forward. And God says, keep moving forward. I need to walk that walk through the desert and then God will, re, will replenish me and then reward me. But many folks quit before God can reward us to make things clear. So I'm working with prayer and meditation, and I'm doing it regularly in the morning. At this point, I was doing three days. In the morning, I get meditation in the afternoon and retire at night some more meditation because I was doing it because I knew my life depended upon it. I also like the effect produced by God. I like what it was doing to me. I was feeling more calm on the inside. Still, I was traveling light rather than traveling heavy. See, God gave me one cross to carry. I carried that joyfully. He didn't expect me to put a second cross on my back, and that's what I was doing. So as long as I was working with the disciplines of 10 and 11 and prayer and meditation, doing a nightly review and confessing all of that to my sponsor, I was traveling a heck of a lot lighter than ever before. 
And so one morning I, I went into meditation. Now, prior to that, a lot of people were telling me, because I says, maybe I should go back to that neighborhood where my mom had that incident. And they said, don't go there. Leave the past in the past. But something in the soul says, we're not done. This body of work is not done. And then I forgot about it. And I went into meditation one time. And in this meditation, what appears to me looks like a statue of, a, of, of this lady. And it was an old statue, and, and it, was, it, was, it was dirty and dusty, and she seemed to be holding an infant. I didn't think much about it. I finished meditation, went about my day. And the very next day, going to meditation again, the same thing happened. Except the statue got a little bit more in focus. And the infant she was holding a little bit more in focus. And on the third or fourth day, I had the same thing happen, except it wasn't a statue. It was lifelike. And she was holding this infant, this innocent infant. And the message I got in this meditation were direct orders to go back to the streets where Van Brunt and Walcott Street in Red Hook, Brooklyn, just off the corner. Go there. You need to go there. I don't know why. That wasn't answered. And I do remember this, and I was a little puzzled by it, but my entire room that I was meditating in, I, it was as if I stepped into a florist. It was a bouquet of flowers. More specifically, roses. My sponsor, Mark H., was in town uh, during this experience with another gentleman, Joe H. They were doing Fellowship of the Spirit in Queens, New York. And I went to see Mark. He was staying at a buddy of mine's house. And I said, Mark, here's what happened to me this morning. I said, I don't know if this means anything, but I smelt roses and he stopped everything. This is significant. Don't talk about it yet. He was leaving for Texas the next day. He called Joe out of the back room and he told Joe what happened. He said, Joe says, we'll go tomorrow. We need to go. There's a priest in Staten Island. He just passed away. And I remember telling Father Jeff about this. And he says, this happened to you? You smell roses. And then he told me it's God's way of showing his love for you. What happened? He wanted to know the whole story. I didn't know the significance of it. And I'm glad I didn't. So the next day, Joe and I got in the car and we headed from uh, Staten Island, New York to Red Hook, Brooklyn. And on the way, Joe was always like, where are you with the men's? Where are you with the men's? Where are you with the men's? You clean up the records, you're past. And he said, you think you owe your mom a men's? I said, I don't think so. I was a little guy when she died. You need to tell her anything. I said, yeah, I do. He said, Maybe that's why we're going there. When my mom had this nervous breakdown, my brother Johnny was about one, one and change and I was all but three. And we get to the corner, and we pull off the corner, and we park the car, and Joe was a big smoke. He sat in the car, and he said, I'll wait here for you. And I got out of the car, and I really wasn't sure what I was doing here yet. Talk to my mom. How am I going to do this? I'm really not sure. And God kept feeding me, little by slowly. See, if he would have gave me the answer right away, I may have gone the following week. Well, I know what I'm going there for. I'll be prepared and I'll create something. He kept me in the dark. And little by slowly, he brought me into the light. So I'm walking around and I'm walking around and I get to a spot on the sidewalk that as sure as I know I'm standing here, I know exactly where I was standing then. And that was the spot I stood when I was three years old. I could feel it. To the left, no. To the right, no. But in that spot. And in that moment, God started to operate in my life. This all came out of instructions from a meditation. I want to remind you of that. 
I kneel down on one knee and I take this little guy, this three-year-old kid, and I let him know, the little me, that you did nothing wrong. You were three. And you didn't cause your mom's death because when I walked into the funeral parlor, the very first funeral I ever walked into is my mom. My head told me, it's your fault because you hit her medication and you hit her whiskey. It's your fault. And I walk with that. It's icky to walk with. And I had to let this little three-year-old me know he's okay and he's coming home with me now. And I'm just making some prayer. And I get done, I go to get in the car, and it's hard to explain this, but it'd be as if something was preventing me from getting into the car. I couldn't get into the car. And I leaned into the window and said, Joe, I can't get in the car. I don't know why something's stopping me. He immediately got out of the car. He said, we need to pray. God's not done. I had told Joe my whole story on the way down there. And he's walking around and he sees flowers, graffiti on the wall. And, and uh, he says, let's pray. So we have Joe and I, two Caucasian guys, in the only two Caucasian guys in a 30-mile square radius in a very rough neighborhood, holding hands on our knees, praying off a street corner. This was not a good idea. <laughs> Joe didn't case. Let's hold hands, got on our knees, and we prayed. Got up off our knees, and Joe's walking around, and he starts to laugh. He says, you need to see what's written here. And just off to my right, about a foot, maybe two, you know when, the quick, uh, when, the, when they do cement and you put your name, your initials in the cement? What was written in the cement was this. And Joe has shared this story at his last few talks before he passed away. Because if I was alone and shared this, they would tell me, Pete, you're making it up. He says, you need to see what's in the concrete. And what was written in the concrete was to Peter and Johnny with love and three little X's underneath. Now, anyone in the neighborhood could have knew a Peter and Johnny. But what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous by hearing your godly experiences that defies science, that defies logic, because God's way beyond that, I got a message. And once again, God showed his face to me, knowing that I'm known by my creator, that God knew this riddle in my life that needed to be answered. Everyone told me not to go, and my sponsor said, you need to go. And in the meditation, it was the blessed mother who spoke to me, says, you need to go. And so I obeyed that command. What if I didn't? Once again, God showed up as a result of meditation and prayer and completely changed me from the inside out. There have been times when I doubted God, had skepticism about God, but I think about those times when God has never forsaken me. God's never left me ever. It's me who's moved because other things became priority. Other things became more important. Other things became more paramount. And the God walks with me the whole time waiting to scoop me up. And over and over and over again, to the longest day and the darkest night, God's always present. He's answered every phone call I made to him in prayer and meditation. There have been times when finances were difficult and career was difficult. When I first met Marion, she lives an hour south of Vancouver. I'm living in Jersey. He says, I'm in love with this woman. How's this? This is not going to work. This is crazy. God says, it will. He just keeps moving me, which is what I'm supposed to do on this journey. Keep mobile, keep moving, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water, and let God do what God's got to do. I need to be moving. I can't just sit still and be stagnant and rely on yesterday's experience to keep me sober today. 
On our way back from Red Hook, Joe and I, I had to stop into Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I had to run up to my brother John's apartment because I had to shout this good news to someone. I had to tell someone what just happened to me because it was indeed miraculous what just took place. I saw it with my own eyes. While this was going on, my, my grandmother was babysitting my brother John because he was too young to be, to be out and about. And my brother let me in and he was with his uh, ex-wife. His ex-wife now is with his wife. I said, you don't believe what just happened. And I told him, my brother began to weep. Just visceral reaction, just began to weep when I told him what just happened. He says, can you tell me it one more time? Can you tell me it one more time? Because the mind can't compute miracles like this. But to God, this happens every day. If you want to see a miracle, just look to your left or right. Both people are sober. We're not supposed to be here. See, I can take credit for my sobriety and say how hard I work. Sometimes we go to AA anniversaries. You know, it's innocent. Uh, come up here and take your coin. Tell us how you did it. I got up there once and says, I did nothing and sat down. I've worked hard for my recovery. I've really helped this sponsee. I've done absolutely nothing. I'll tell you what I did. I ruined my life. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And because I hit such a horrific bottom, God made me reasonable to listen to you, made me a little bit teachable. And what AA did via God was serve all the instructions to me on a silver platter, starting with the big book and this fellowship, and asked me to do just a little bit of service. And suddenly I start to change from the inside out. I did nothing. You gave me this. The way God gave you sobriety, God gives me sobriety. I stand by the door and wait for the next one and shout the good news, not hide God in the closet. I was talking to someone I sponsored earlier today, and I says, I go to a lot of conferences. I get invited to a lot of these things. And sometimes they do a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, five, six, seven, eight speakers. I can count maybe on one hand the times God, the word God is mentioned. I don't know why this is happening. But this whole thing for me is a godly movement. It's a spiritual movement. And I need to be shouting that from the rooftops. And AA ought to be a pep rally for this power called God. Because that's the only one that's going to keep me sober. No human power. Not my home group. Not my sponsor. Not my big book. Not if I make the best coffee in the whole world. God could and would if he was sought. Am I seeking? Am I knocking on his door with the desperation of a drowning man? For me, this is what 11 Step talks about. We can talk about mechanics. I know a lot of cats who got mechanics better than I do, and they can't stay sober or dead. So I need the mechanics. They're vital. It's a set of instructions to take me from here to there. But who's taking me? Me? When I'm writing a fourth step, I'm actually writing the fourth step. Who's keeping me sober while I'm doing a fourth step? When I'm praying, who's keeping me sober while I'm prayer rather than running out to the liquor store? And when I have doubts of moments of doubt and skepticism, my back's against the wall, I think God's not listening. I'm still staying sober. There's a reason for that. Because God could and what if he was sought. So I start my day on awakening, and I don't play with that one. I'm up very early. Five is a sleeping day lately. I'm driving my poor wife crazy because I'm up at like 10 after 4. Let's do stuff. I, I, I wake up at like 10 after 4 and it's not like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I'm ready to roll. Then I have to go to work because I'm really tired. I, <laughs> I pray, I meditate, uh, uh, make coffee, do some reading, do some social media, read the news, get really angry. 
Um, do some laundry. I do stuff for go to the gym. I'm, I'm, I got all this juice. That I'm so grateful. But on awakening, literally on awakening, I remember waking up one time and, oh my God, I'm still sober. Thank you, God. And all time he says that what you're supposed to be doing. So literally the eyes open up and I, 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 I'm a Catholic and I do my little thing here and I thank my God for another day. Thank you, God, for waking me up this morning. And in that place, I asked him to keep me clean and sober through the day, right off the bat. I'm not going to wait till I have 17 Red Bulls and a carton of cigarettes, go to Facebook, oh, let me pray and meditate now. And I'm like buzzing through meditation. You know, I'm not going to go on Facebook and say, look at me, I'm meditating. I mean, you know, have you seen these people? I don't do any of this perfect, but I, 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 conscious contact with God is that important to me. So on awakening, uh, I thank God. And then I go, I got a little prayer room and I was taught this by Joe and Mark back in the day and, and Don P rest his soul. They're all gone. They says, create a space in your house, a sacred place in your house, a space, a place that you're going to go to regularly. It's your God room. I have a little office where I do Zoom and I have a whole bunch of books, this little library and all this other stuff, but I have a meditation mat and I have what I call a little altar there. And I have a lot of things, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, so a lot of things that look Catholic. And I have my anoint oil and all this stuff, and I have holy water, all that stuff. It's a very sacred place, and that's where I go to. Not only in the morning, but throughout the day. When I get to do one of these talks, I do a four-hour fast. And before I come here, I do prayer meditation. Because even though the group invited me, God speaks through a group conscious. I'm taken as an invitation from him to go talk about him. I don't need anything in the way. So I do a four-hour fast. That's why I have the, just a little tip, this Coca-Cola, uh, because sometimes my sugar drops when fasting, and my doctor says it's not the healthiest thing, but have a little Coca-Cola. It'll spike your blood, up, your blood sugar up so you don't pass out. Because a few times I was getting woozy up here. So I always carry a Coca-Cola, but I honor the four-hour meditation. But on awakening, I do this thing. And I go into this prayer room, and I begin with some prayers. And what I've learned is my prayers cannot command the Spirit to do anything. I'm going, God, not for me to change, but hopefully He continues to change me. So my prayers have been one of honor and reverence, but really... It's just about centering, getting myself centered to realize who I'm talking to right now. Sometimes I can treat people like God and God like people. But I'm standing in this presence of God. Whether I'm feeling it or not, he hears the prayers. No prayers go unanswered. Sometimes you're just not now. And I think he's not listening. How many things have I thought I really deserve that I didn't get? And I move forward and go, I'm glad I didn't get it. Thank you, God. So I open up with a, a, a third-step prayer and seven-step prayer because I just like them. I like saying the serenity prayer. I love our Lord's prayer. And I say these prayers to get me centered. And then I offer prayers for the suffering in the world, for suffering locally, and I pray for a lot of people. I hear Marion doing it the same thing. We pray for people. It isn't a moment to think about myself. If I'm having pain and, or some, some torment, I'm having a problem forgiving someone, that's when I offer prayers for me. Father, show me how to get past this. Fill me with the spirit of forgiveness. 
I believe, help me with my unbelief. Take me like the wretched sinner I am. I will live for you and I will die for you as long as I'm in your light. Those are some of my words. I still pray for my mom, even though I know where she is. I still offer prayers for her because there's times where I miss her terribly. I'm 63 years old. I still wish I had my mom. If she'd be 85 by now, it'd be pretty cool to see her once in a while. I pray for my dad. My dad's going to be 85. My dad has slowed down a lot. He was a rough and tumble alpha male from South Brooklyn, took no lip from anyone. He was the Robert De Niro and Goodfellas guy. And now he walks with a walker. And sometimes when I speak to him, he repeats the same thing a lot. And he loses his train of thought. And then every once in a while he comes back. He's back again. When he's cursing, I know he's back. <laughs> when he's angry about something, I know I'm talking to Vic Marinelli. And then he kind of gets, he drifts. It's killing me. He's coming down here next week. I'll meet him at Dunkin' Donuts early in the morning. He'll smoke all the cigarettes that he wants because his wife's not around. And we'll have a couple of cups of coffee. And I'm watching this happen because I'm still a 10-year-old kid who wants that, that dad, that tough guy dad who was always protected by him. It's very difficult. But I trust in my God, and I don't mourn the living. And sometimes all I have to do, God says, just be there with him. Just be his friend. Just be his son. Miracles are his department, not mine. So it's another place I just chop wood and carry water. My dad's telling me the same story for a third time. I make out I heard it for the first time. But every time I'm with him, in the morning, um, and I go off to work, I have a great work day. And I don't like to drift into morbid reflection, but one day my dad may get called home and I won't have that Dunkin' Donuts hour. Or the phone call. So I can't mourn the living, I need to be there with all his defects because he's tolerated all of mine. That's why I try to live with a spirit of forgiveness as God would have me. And sometimes it's tough to forgive. I used to think I had to forgive and forget. I'm not that good. God is. God can forgive and forget. I just can't hold a grudge anymore. So when I'm done with my prayers, I go into sacred silence. I've said this from a million podiums. I go into silence to hear and doctors to see. So with eyes closed and focusing on breath, I sit. When I first started this journey, a woman put me on a two-minute timer. She said, two minutes. Be quiet. It felt like eternity. A lot of noise in the head. First time you go quiet, suddenly you hear all the noise. I got used to it, and I try to go quiet. And, wow, it's, it's, it's messy up there. Then three minutes, and then four minutes, and then five minutes, and then seven minutes. And I don't need a timer anymore because the soul is looking forward to that quiet time. I love getting up early because it's quiet time with God before I even go into meditation. And when I'm done with all of it, it's still dark, it's still quiet. I love, I love it. It's like a sanctuary in my house. My wife is safe 
I'm in the house with her. She's safe. She's tucked away in the bedroom sleeping. The house is safe. God's in the house. I love it. And very often in those morning hours, not all the time, but something will, be, will come to me. Marion calls it God putting something on her heart. It might be in prayer, it might be meditation, it might be while I'm just, you know, doing some things in the kitchen. It's like an aha moment. And there's, a, there's someone, I think his name is Rumi, he says, the morning breeze has secrets to tell you. But if I'm sleeping until 10 and 11 because I'm just too lazy to get out of bed, I'm going to miss all. I'm going to miss the splendor of God in all its glory in those quiet times. Because sometimes when he wakes me up at 3.30 in the morning, it's like, you're so important to me. I want to be alone with you to talk. Because once the day starts, the day starts and there's a lot of moving parts in the day. And so I go into meditation. My meditations are at least 10 minutes, sometimes a lot longer. Sometimes 15 in the morning, sometimes 20, sometimes longer. I stopped counting. There was a time on this journey where I got attached to all that. I've joked about this for many, time, many times. I got into how long I have to stay in meditation and would, you know, just grind it out till it hit 20 minutes to make sure everyone in my home group knew I did 20 minutes, like they were going to erect a statue outside for me. He meditates 20 minutes. He must be spiritual. <laughs> And I got the candles, and I got the sage, and I got the gongs and the music. I had the electric light orchestra in front of me. And the only thing praying and meditating is all that stuff, because I'm watching it. Candles got to be a little higher, sage got to burn down. I'm burning the house down, Teddy. You know, all this stuff is going on. And I'm no meditation going on. I'm watching a show. Thomas Merton talks about this. Do I need music to feel spiritual? Music's going to enlighten you. It's going to make you feel good. But am I dependent upon music to feel, to feel God? And singing to feel God? And maybe uh, burning all the sage and listening to meditation music to feel God? At the beginning, that's wonderful. But after a while, if I'm still leaning on that, I'm missing something. I'm missing God. God doesn't need music or sage or candles or gongs or chimes or anything. God doesn't need anything. He's God. What I need to go is into that silence. And here's the thing. I don't like going that quiet. If it gets too quiet, I hear me and I don't want to hear me. I get to touch this very busy mind. I don't want to go there. And there's a woman, Carolyn Mace, talks about this. Maybe God's got something to tell me or challenging me with that I don't want to look at. So I'll put all the music on and I'll burn all the sage and I get nowhere. I become an idol worshiper. And I fell right into that with about five or six years sober. So in the morning, I just go into sacred silence and I don't know how long I'm in. I know I try to make it at least 10 minutes and it says on awakening. I think about the 24 hours a day. I consider my plans. I need to ask God, divorce from self-pity, dishonest and self-seeking motives. In other words, get me out of the way, God. Those are all prayers. And when I'm going through the day, it talks about getting agitated or doubtful. Sometimes I'm agitated, sometimes I'm doubtful, sometimes I'm both. I pause. My sponsors say, turn in. Turn in in order to go out. Turn in in order to go out. Because if I don't turn in, I will go without. So the pause is, okay, God, where do I go? What do I do? What do I say? And sometimes being still and saying nothing speaks volumes and sometimes speaking a lot says nothing. I don't need to be talking all the time. I need to be listening a lot more than speaking. 
That's why my prayers are on and on and on, and it's a Christmas list of stuff. God already knows. I'm just offering it because that's what I'm supposed to do. When I tell God my back is hurting, help me with this, I'm getting older. God, I'm afraid of financial insecurity. He already knows. But there's some sort of on bended knees going to God and asking. It's a force feeding of humility. So my book tells me this. On awakening, I think about the 24 hours ahead. I consider my plans for the day. Before I begin, before I do anything, I ask God, there's my prayer, to direct my thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Another way to look at that, without God, I'm dishonest, I'm self-seeking, and I have no good motives. My sponsor, my very first sponsor says, an alcoholic with a motive should be considered armed and dangerous. I have no good motives because there's a payoff for me at the end. I don't know about you. Under these conditions, I employ my mental faculties for, with assurance. After all, God gave me brains to use. My thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when my thinking is clear of wrong motives. I start to transcend my own thinking. On a higher plane, I'm getting in line with God. I'm in line with God because I'm practicing fidelity to God. I'm one with God. I don't mean me, I mean us. God doesn't care if you're sober five years or one year or three days. God is God. But I'm making strides to experience it or I'm expecting it just to happen through osmosis because I make 90 meetings in 90 days. How much time am I giving to God? One of the things I learned from my, uh, my grand sponsor was something called communing with God. Do I commune with God? It's the most intimate relationship I'm ever going to have. Now, with someone I love, sometimes we just watch a movie together. Sometimes we get to do a getaway for the weekend. Sometimes we'll sit by the beach together. We don't have to talk. We're together. It's intimate. Sometimes when we're someone we love, we experience physical intimacy, emotional intimacy. It's important. When you're with someone you love, let's, you and I get away for a day. Let's, let's do, do something, me and you. That's intimacy. But what about God? Am I doing that with God? Am I making time for God in the morning or in the evening or any time for that matter? Mm. Going into that sacred silence and, and having, without saying a word, it's like a contemplative work, a contemplative prayer, just being. With some reflection on this power called God and where he has taken me. I don't know where I'm going. I wish I could peek around the corner once in a while and see what's up ahead. But I know where I've been and where I currently am as of tonight at 8.02. I know where I've been and as of 8.02, I know where I am. There were times where I woke up and I missed three days. I don't know where I've been. And I have no idea who's next to me. But God's great work has taken me from the scrappy to a level of life better than the best I've known.
As I go through the day, I pause when agitated or doubtful, and I ask for the right daughter action. I constantly remind myself I'm no longer running the show. Humbly saying to myself many times each day, thy will be done. I am uh, much less uh, danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. I'm not like a ball in a pinball machine, just bouncing off of bumpers all day long. My day doesn't hinge on what someone says about me. My day doesn't hinge on somebody's in a bad mood. My day hinges on my conscious contact with God. I go through life a lot lighter, not perfect. I have my moments, but a lot lighter. There's some fun about all of it. There's some passion about all of it. There's some excitement about being here, about all of it, about getting all you know, charged up to go up to Jensen Beach last night. I saw Michael and Zach and somebody else was with you guys. And just to go to a meeting up in Jensen Beach and, and just hang out. Or going to our conference we just had in Fort Lauderdale, getting all jacked up to be around that. And sometimes after a meeting, we go to the worst diner in South Florida and have the worst food and the worst cup of coffee and fast service. And when you're outside, says, we're going to do this again. <laughs> what a great night. I remember one time I ordered chicken. I think it was still, the heart was still beating. I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> And had, I had a root beer that was flat. And the onion rings were dead. The company was excellent. And on the way home, Mary and I said, what a great night we just had. This was fabulous. It's all God. Because there was a time no one would even invite a guy like me to the dinner table. Just a couple more things and I'm just about out of time. Here's the part that I, I've sponsored a lot of men, and this is challenging for, for many, but it falls off the map all the time when we retire at night. There's some instructions for me to wrap up my day because I don't want to wake up Tuesday wearing Monday. I don't want to wake up Tuesday with an emotional hangover from Monday because what begins to happen if I'm not addressing that stuff, it starts to accumulate little by slowly. So if I put a piece of loose leaf in that doorway, one single sheet of loose leaf in that doorway, that doorway is unaffected. If I put two or three sheets in that doorway, it's still unaffected. If I put 30 or 40 sheets of loose leaf in that doorway, it's affected. It's jammed up. It's stuck. It doesn't operate properly. If I'm not addressing my retiring at night and reviewing my day, because I got a 10 step to get around with as well. What begins to happen, that resentment becomes a couple of resentments. That fear becomes a few fears. That jealousy becomes a little bit more jealousy. Here comes seven deadly sins and suddenly I'm jammed up and I'm waking up every day wearing the last week all over me and I can't get past me. I can't see clear. I can't hear clear because I'm consumed with me. My stuff becomes more more paramount than God, recovery, and life itself. I'm in my head. I got all this stuff going on. And I'm expecting one more meeting to knock it out, and it won't. What I need to do is this work. And not just this, but going through the steps. So when I arrive at 11, the slate, the eraser board is pretty clean. Not perfect, but pretty clean. And I keep the channel flowing so we're like aqueducts for God. When I retire at night, I constructively review my day. This is not about to make me feel like a terrible person. Constructively review my day. Where did I miss the mark today? Sinfulness. I missed the mark. I fell asleep. I said something I shouldn't have. I showed up in a place I wasn't invited or I didn't show up if I wasn't. But what did I do wrong? 
Can I fix this? Do I owe an apology? Was I resented, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Have I kept something to myself which should be discussed with another person at once? This is key. This is that sins of omission thing. I'm going to tell my sponsor almost everything. I'm not going to tell him about that because I'm embarrassed. And I'm not going to tell him about that because I'm embarrassed. But five out of ten ain't bad. And our book says earlier on, half measures avail us nothing. Have I kept something to myself which should be discussed with another person at once? So I get some spiritual consent with some men in my life. Can I run something by you? I got really angry at work about this or really upset about, I'm really in a lot of fear about this. I need to share this with you. Was I kind and loving toward all what could I have done better? Was I thinking of myself most of the time or thinking of what I can do for others, how I can pack into the stream of life? Back in page 63, it tells me less and less about me, more and more about others that are reminding me here. Am I consumed with me during the day or am I looking to help others? Because that's my job in Alcoholics Anonymous, to serve rather than to be served. And somehow, it's one of those AA things, the more I feed you, the more content I am, the more okay I am with me. It's when I'm a taker, I keep going home empty. So my life has become one of service. I I work with this 11-step prayer. I'm quick to see where religious people are right. I'm active in my church. Thank you, God, for that. I'm a member of good standing in my church. I don't know how I did so long without it. Book talks about inspirational books. I have a room full of books. We have our house full of books, and a lot of them we've gobbled up. We go to. They're marked up. They're falling apart. Not so I can come back and sound really profound because I quote something and claim it's mine, but just to wake me up more to God. Some considerations. Current author I've been working with for a few years now who's really speaking to my soul, and there was a time where I couldn't go near it, is Thomas Merton. I think he's absolutely incredible. He's challenging. He goes, he goes into a place that no other author's ever gone for me. And I like reading him and sitting with what I read in a meditation, just reflecting on some of the words. Because all of that information must create a transformation. All of that information must become who I be. All of that information must be right in here, not up in here. And I start to walk different, not perfect. I start to talk different, not perfect. But my life begins, our lives begin to look godly. And I'll just say this and and get out of here. This not might fit, may not fit everyone. We're all called to sanctity, whether we liked it or not. And we're all born to be saints, whether we like it or not. That's how much love God has for someone like me, people like us. Called to sanctity, called to be saints. All I have to do is stop and listen and follow instructions. And I will find utopia walking up and down Las Olas Boulevard, walking up and down A1A, working at work sponsoring people or just laying on the beach. I will find utopia in that because that's what Bill Wilson called it, utopia, right here and right now. That's all I got. Peace. Okay, let's give Peter another hand.
now I'd like to call up for our secretary report. Hey everyone, my name is Mark. I'm your fill-in recovered alcoholic secretary once again. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are going to be going around. While the baskets are going around, I've asked Chris to come up here and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Here's Chris. Here's some an alcoholic. We are not cured of alcoholism, recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was a problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, consequently we have recovered. Thank you, Chris. 1940-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Uh, this part of the meeting, can I please see a show of hands of... Or no, I, first of all, anyone need a sponsor? No. Um, okay, can we see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics, just for the hell of it? Cool. Well, if anyone does need a sponsor, there, there's plenty of people with their hands raised. Please see one of them. Um, let's get these folks back to God (laughs) Um, we got some events going on in the month of September in AA in Broward County most importantly Broward County Intergroup Uh, if you need medallions, AA literature any of that fun stuff Um, BCIC do we have our BCIC person here it's usually Peter Um, anyone else BCIC. Well, they meet every, th- uh, what do they meet? Business meetings at 10 a.m. every second Saturday of the month. If you're interested in that, you just show up at a 12-step house at that time. Uh, there's volunteer opportunities if anyone wants to get involved. Flyers are in the back if you want to know any more about the volunteer opportunities. Peter's next week, his last week very sad day and time. Uh, after that, we have three weeks of Karina D. I think she's here tonight. I saw her. She's going to be doing three weeks. After that, we have Joe Bear of Pompano Beach. He's going to be doing a full series, 12 weeks. Um, and then Mondays, it's my home group. We meet upstairs. Uh, the big book comes alive on the third floor. Fellowships at 6.30. The meeting starts at 7.15 go through the big book line by line. It comes alive. Um, it really does. <laughs> um, one more fun announcement. We don't have a slide for Oh, 
Labor Day weekend, we don't have a slide for it, but I'm just going to tell you, down at Snyder Park in the southwest part of Fort Lauderdale, Pavilion 5 specifically, um, there's a Labor Day picnic going on. We have guest speaker Stevie B. Tickets the day of the picnic are $10. They're $8 if you want to get before the picnic. You have a couple days. You can go down to the 12-step house and save $2. Uh, <laughs> um, there's, there's a live band called Magic Bus. I don't know them. It sounds like a Who cover band. That, that'd be cool if it is. Um, hot dogs, hamburgers, salads, desserts, face paintings, and one of those bounce house. Um, you, you get it, bounce house. <laughs> Bring a newcomer. It's not it for me. We got a quick reminder, 75, 75 foot from the door. If you're going to smoke or vape, please just don't smoke or vape from the door. The church asks us nicely. Um, go to either side. And one last thing, I'm out of here. We have CDs, mugs, large print, big books, little red books, big book dictionaries for sale. We meet here every Thursday, starting probably at 7.15. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. See you next week. Thanks. We have tonight's sessions and all the past speaker podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. I'd also like to invite you to our Monday night big book study that's upstairs. And any of you who would like to wish to thank our speaker for tonight to line up down the center aisle. And let's close where we're seated with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever.
zan, zan, zan. Oh, when you're smiling. When you laughing, ba 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 ba. When you laughing, yes, the sun comes shining through. But when you crying. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little 
Here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Each way flies blooming 
screaming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Shot. 